and welcome to the Dog Logical Podcast. I'm your host, Renee Rhodes. And I'm your host, Cassie Dixon. Join two dog nerds and our guests, giving you tips, tricks, and busting myths aimed at making sense of your dog's behavior. Hi, guys, and welcome to the Dog Logical Podcast. Today, we have Erin Marion from Down to Earth Dog Lady, and she specializes in disabled dogs. Hi, Erin. Hey, thank you so much for having me today. Absolutely. And also, we have Cassie here. Cassie, do you want to say hey? Hello, hello. Excellent. So, Erin, I'm going to let you introduce yourself to our listeners. Hi, yeah, my name is Erin Marion. I own and operate the Down to Earth Dog Lady. I'm a certified professional trainer who specializes in training dogs who are deaf and or blind. Fantastic. And so I'm really excited. Yeah, really excited about having this this talk with you today because I know personally I've had a few um, deaf clients. I've never had a a blind puppy. Uh, Oh, that's not true. I did have a blind dog uh, last year who um, had a lot of stress and anxiety and spun constantly. So um, not a lot of experience under my belt. Um, But so I'm really excited to learn about this. I am very, like I said, it's my favorite uh, subject to talk about. And some of those things that you just listed are things I hope we discuss because they can actually be pretty common. Yeah. Uh, right. Okay. Well, let's start off the conversation with just getting some, some baseline kind of terminology. So how, what is the terminology that you would use to describe uh, deaf and or blind dogs? Yeah, so typically overall, we just like to say disabled dogs. I don't really think there needs to be any extra lingo lingo that goes along with that. There's nothing wrong with the word disabled, so I still continue to use that. For deaf dogs, simply deaf dogs, blind dogs, as you said before, simply blind dogs. And I like to actually say for dogs who are deaf and blind, we just take out that end and you'll usually, uh, you'll hear me say deaf blind as almost one word to talk about those types of dogs. Perfect. That's so great. I had always kind of had a hard time with that. But so for our listeners, when you talk about disabled dogs, you're mostly sticking to the deaf blind, but do you also work with other disabilities as well? Is there often ones that come into it or is it just mostly those for you? That's a really great question. So I actually just haven't had the opportunity to work with dogs in wheelchairs, dogs um, who are, you know, tripod dogs, anything like that. I don't know if I would totally label them as disabled, but usually when uh, when speaking today, I will mention mostly deaf blind or deaf dogs, blind dogs, and deaf and blind dogs. Perfect. All right. That was more of a question just for me than anything, truthfully, <laughs> but I appreciate it. Um, so what are the reasons that a dog may be born with a sensory deficit? So that's a great question. So what typically happens is from bad breeding. So when you have the Merle gene, the piebald gene, um, whenever you see a gene that is meant to completely wash out the coat. So you'll see this in uh, Dalmatians, you'll see this in Australian Shepherds, Great Danes. Um, You will see that when you breed a sire and a dam that both have that type of gene that you can double it and you can cause blood loss to the ears and to the eyes. Typically, along with uh, those symptoms, you'll also have what's called a 
microophthalmia, which means that their eyes are simply too small for the sockets. So a lot of these dogs who we consider vision visually impaired, it's simply because their eyes are underdeveloped and they're hidden behind that third eyelid there. So it's not that these dogs are born without eyes, they're simply just underdeveloped. And honestly, they may be able to see some things, which we can talk about, uh, but usually that full deafness just simply means there was not enough blood that went to the vessels of the ears. Yeah, that's so interesting. Hearing that there is a actual blood loss to these vital areas, I've never, I never looked into it that deeply, but it makes a lot of sense. And how do you go about training dogs who can't see you and or might not be able to hear you? Another great question. So let's talk about each category. So we'll talk about deaf, blind, and deafblind dogs. So deaf dogs, you have eyesight. And typically, especially if you know you have a herding breed, you really have eyesight <laughs> to the point where they're almost, I call them little terminator dogs because they're just scanning their areas all the time. Um, so you can use hand signals for those. I love, you know, a very common marker cue or uh, is a thumbs up or a starfish uh, type hand motion. For blind dogs, you have hearing. So you can use clickers, you can use verbal. However, when it comes to blind dogs, I also like to use tactile training. And that's what you solely have to use with deaf blind dogs. So tactile training, <laughs> I like to joke and kind of call it your special Morris code between you and your dog, because it literally is little gentle boops and swipes. Um, nothing where you're putting pressure or uh, um, hitting or anything like that to the dog. You're simply, I like to say, two fingers worth of pressure to get your dog's attention. And that's going to be called tactile or touch training. I love that. Morse code with you. It's like a little individual, you know, communication tactic that you have with your dog. It's that's beautiful. I love that. That's, that's really cute. Actually. I do really like that as well. Um, so I'm going to circle back to, uh, just deaf dogs here for a second, mainly because that's primarily what I've worked with. And one of the things that I've recommended to a lot of clients is actually using a light in place of a click or, um, you know, visual that way. So that if they don't necessarily have their dog's attention and focus directly on them, the dog can still see that light out of the peripheral or whatever the case may be. And it can often be really helpful in terms of that. Have you had any experience with working with that or tried that with any of your clients? Yeah, that is a fantastic recommendation. I think you have to, and as I'm sure, you know, we're all professional trainers here. I think you have to just make sure on who you recommend it to. If your dog already has some obsessive compulsive tendencies, I think that it can go pretty wrong pretty quickly. However, I've used it quite a bit for potty training, <laughs> um, especially at nighttime uh, with puppies who are visually impaired also. Uh, they can, some most visually impaired dogs can at least see, unless their eyes were physically removed, can at least tell a little bit of like a light difference if someone shuts a light off or turns a light on. Um, so I use it a lot for potty training and a little bit for recall as well. There are some dogs such as healers that I tend to not do that training method simply because like I stated earlier, they tend to be easily, um, they tend to easily tip over into the obsessive uh, bucket. 
Yeah, that's totally fair. Totally fair. I definitely find um, the ones that I usually recommend are the blue or white lights that are oh. on either keychains or pen lights. So they tend to be like a broader, larger range and easier to kind of like push on and off really quickly. So that makes total sense, honestly. And I guess I've been more in the realm of not necessarily like hurting breeds um, or, you know, those guys that maybe are going to fall into that obsessive compulsive category. So I haven't seen that be so much of an issue. So that's really good for me moving forward, knowing that for sure. And that's those recommendations and those types of lights are perfect. Sometimes when we say lights, people think automatically flashlights or anything like that, which can still really be helpful. However, like like you just said, yeah, you just want to make sure you're recommending it for the dogs uh, and thinking about the dog's genetics a little bit, you know. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. Genetics always matter. And sometimes we, exactly. even as trainers, forget about that for sure. I have a really quick question about, you know, again, circling around that kind of sensory training um, with touch and things as uh, just getting your opinion on vibration collars for dogs that may be um, deaf. What are your kind of thoughts on, on using those? Yeah, that is a great question. And I, I've get, I've gotten asked this question quite a bit. I have nothing, even though I, you know, I, I consider myself a positive reinforcement trainer, I have nothing wrong with uh, vibration collars or anything like that if it's the safety for your dog. I am just one trainer that does not use them. Uh, one of my mentors while on this training journey said to me, and I'll never forget it, you know, never recommend a tool that you just aren't educated enough in or uh, haven't worked with enough. So when I did use vibration collars, I had a personal incident happen with one of my dogs that went horribly wrong. And I just don't want to, you know, trauma involved with that. I just uh, decided to not use that tool after my own personal experience. However, I think it is a life-saving tool for a lot of deaf dog owners. They just need to make sure it's used appropriately. And even though I could educate myself more on how to use them for my, like I said, for my own personal reasons, I tend to use long lines, uh, leash check-ins, slight pressure to give a little check-in on the leash, things like that. Um, but that's as far as, as I go with deaf dogs. Yeah, I think that's great. You know, um, your, your mentor was absolutely right. We don't want to dive into tools that we don't have a good understanding of, but also, you know, it also kind of goes into, you don't want to necessarily be doing more harm than good. And I think for me, you know, again, being more positive trainers, we kind of shy away from those types of tools because we're just afraid that the dog may not have a good response. And especially when you're dealing with a dog that might have some of those sensory deficits, they may not be able to communicate or, you know, indicate that maybe it's not um, the tool for them. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I think that's great that you're, you're open to it, but you've also decided that it's not something that you feel comfortable at this time. Thanks for saying that. <laughs> <laughs> And that's, that's really good actually too, because to your point, Erin, working with someone who is certified and knowledgeable and all of the above is kind of a point that I think Renee and I come back to a lot. We come back to it often in saying that, you know, find somebody who knows what they're doing with the tools that they're recommending to you and knows why those tools work and things like that. So making sure that, you know, if you are using a vibration collar, um, or it is recommended to you for a deaf or blind or both dog, um, that it's being used for a positive, as in a positive interrupter, or, you know, as your recall cue or things like that, it's not in place of 
teaching or using for punishment based anything. Exactly. It would, I mean, it would strictly have to be for recall purposes and it would be, it would be taught as more, like you said, a check-in. So vibration would be come find me instead of vibration means don't do that. Absolutely. And I, I think as well, you know, just kind of basing on, on what you've said is that it shouldn't necessarily be the first protocol. There should be some steps that they go through before someone might say, oh, you know, we could always try a vibration collar. Um, and I think definitely, you know, you've touched on long lines and, and things like that. And I think it, for me, at least it would be a red flag if that would be the first thing that somebody would jump to is automatically recommending a vibration collar without maybe trying some other lighter methods first. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I was going to kind of ask another question here, which may be totally completely off topic, but then I completely forgot what my question was because <laughs> you're, you pulled me in. I was just so interested. I'm like, oh no, I totally forget. Um, but it definitely was along those lines um, in terms of what you see with these deathline dogs. And like you said, genetics and breed often matter in terms of other behaviors that you're going to see as more prominent just due to their breed or whatever the case may be. Can you walk us through a couple like typical scenarios that you see with these dogs on a regular basis? Like what are some of the things that people come to you for? Because in my experience with uh, deafblind dogs, they often tend to offer a lot of attention and focus to their handler, oftentimes more so at a younger age than your average able-bodied dog do you experience kind of the same thing yeah so some common questions or some you know some common categories of client that I get um obviously I hate to say this but my favorite ones just come from me you know come to me when they have this the blank slate of a puppy you know where do I get started how do I those so, are the best clients ever. They always are. Even <laughs> or, or my favorite is we're thinking about getting a pup. And I'm like, yes. I love you. Can I say I, I love you? I love you. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I know. Is it too soon in the relationship for me to tell you I love you? Um, so some, but so say past that, say we're, you know, I, I see a lot of adolescents. So one thing that deafblind dogs tend to do to get attention is to, they're very, very mouthy, very mouthy. Um, even as puppies, they don't, I believe they don't get the social interactions as seeing and hearing dogs do as if, you know, when they're playing very young and the other dog and the other puppy squeals, I don't think these ones, you know, they don't get that input. So most puppies and most adolescents are very mouthy to the point that when they're in sensory overload, so let's talk about, you've got a windstorm happening. You have, your dog has to go out and poop. They finally poop. They smell a bunch of the grass, the wind is happening, maybe a bus drives by, you go inside, most cases scenario, the dog is very mouthy. And it's because there has, there was just so much sensory input that I truly believe the dog is just trying to communicate, I'm feeling overwhelmed, or I'm not quite sure what to do with myself, I'm just going to mouth you. So I would say that is mostly 85% of my clients. Sometimes uh, some client, one client came to me because the dog didn't like her scrunchies on her wrists and always went after her scrunchies and her fluffy slippers. Like anytime the dog smelled that she had these things on, the dog was constantly mouthing her, mouthing her leg, mouthing her slippers, mouthing her wrist. 
Um, so mouthiness is a very common one. I would say spinning is another common category that I get. Uh, potty training obviously is, is a very big one. And just honestly educating the client when their dog is in sensory overload. So a lot of these times a dog who is deaf blind will lift its head into the air it will have stiff body posture and you can just tell the dog is puzzling like it it is trying to take in you know the smells the taste the tactile cues and usually then what happens is we have some type of zoomies or some barking but there's these little little behaviors that they start to show that if educated on you can prevent some of this anxiety. You can reel that fish back in and say, hey, let's actually go inside and practice our settling techniques or let's go and redirect before you get to that, before you get past that threshold, thinking that weather is actually a big to-do in your dog's life. Um, so that a lot of the common stuff is just educating dog guardians about sensory stuff and some of the body language so we can prevent some of these unwanted behaviors. You know, to me, it sounds like if you weren't talking about maybe a deaf or blind or deaf blind dog, you would be almost talking about almost any puppy. Yeah. <laughs> that sensory, <laughs> that sensory overload, the mouthing, yeah. you know, yeah. the zoomies. And I think that brings me to a really good question of, you know, when, when we talk about how do we train these dogs, when you're talking about the tactile work and Cassie and, and you discussed about lights and things like that is not forgetting that at the end of the, they're just dogs. Like they yeah. do try to connect with the world in very similar, if not exact same ways as other dogs, they just might be missing one of those, you know, sensory abilities. Yeah. And that's, and I think sometimes though is, you know, I'm such an advocate that these dogs are just like any other dog, but we still want to remember, you know, that we do have to think out of the box with these, you know, that it might not be, uh, you know, we, we still want, you know, like I said, we still want to look at the weather and we still want to like, you know, you still want to think about different textures your dog is walking on, or if someone approaches who may have just had a cigarette, you know, whereas yes, very similar to to seeing and hearing puppies, I still try to push my deaf blind dog owners to think a little outside of that box of that, that is going to affect your dog more, maybe more, especially with smell and things like that, maybe more than a seeing and hearing dog. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that so, makes yeah. tons and tons of sense for sure. I would say to you, so when you see this in these puppies and often I'm assuming you're saying you're seeing it more in puppies that are deaf blind or one or one other or both. Um, what's one of the coping skills that you like to teach to those puppies? Like what's your go-to when you have a puppy that is experiencing sensory overload? Yeah. So great question. Even before I start to see sensory overload, I really like to, I, you know, I will blow past it. I will blow past, um, you know, tricks and things like that. Uh, I focus mostly on settling work. So the, some of the first things I teach puppies are to go to a mat and I never wash the mat, obviously. I, this, so smell is a very big deal when teaching uh, mat training skills. Uh, so I'll go right to mat and settling skills, how to breathe from their nose, I how to just be able to relax for a second. So I'm looking for that popped out hip, that relaxed body posture. I'm looking for 
even if they can possibly even put themselves to sleep that way, you know, obviously as a puppy attention spans are pretty short, but with my own dog, Darla, who is fully blind and partially deaf, uh, the first week which I brought her home till even to this day, that is a skill we are constantly practicing because if you don't teach your dog who is mostly deaf or blind some type of settling techniques, they will teach themselves how to settle down or try to find coping mechanisms which ultimately result into compulsive disorder. So this is where you start to see your mm -hmm. spinning. This is where you start to see your separation anxiety, your panting. They may even go to the bathroom. Well, I had a foster dog who would spin so violently that he would then defecate and go to the bathroom and then continue to spin in it. Um, so if these dogs aren't taught settling skills, relaxation protocols, um, I think it can get pretty detrimental pretty quickly. So that's always my go-to for deaf, blind, or deaf, blind dogs. That makes total, total sense. And honestly, my, my hips hurt just thinking about that. Yes. Thing. Oh my goodness. Uh, <laughs> it's, I, it's, just, uh, it's pretty anxiety provoking for the human too, you yeah. know? Do you have a specific protocol that you typically lean on? What does that kind of look like? Yeah. So this is one thing I'm actually trying to dive into more because I mean, I have only really started to uh, book up with just disabled dog clients within the last three years. Uh, and each year I find more common uh, behavioral issues. And like I said, settling is really one that I am starting to kind of really research a lot more. So this is my protocol. I do not want to say I invented it because it may be a mixture of everything I have just learned along the way. Um, so how I typically go about things is to start mat skills and I like to make it very fun. So I will gamify the dog training. I will start with basics on the mat, such as sit down. All of this, if we are talking about deaf blind dogs would be all tactile. So Usually a sit is your two fingers or your one finger and you double tap very gently. I just want to highlight bold italic that <laughs> very, very gently because it's not like a, like a, with your fingers, a very, very gentle, very gentle, um, gentle tap. <laughs> and you kind of blur with the treat, then you use your marker cue. So that's a sit. Typically a down is a swipe down one of the legs or a tap on the foot. Very gentle again uh, to get the dog. And you just, once the dog, say this is all you practice, you just, once the dog picks up on, okay, I go to this mat and I lay down, then I try to set the stage. So what I mean by that is I will pair it in situations such as I want to watch a movie right now. And every time we go to this specific chair and I put this bed right by my feet here. And if you're blind and you hear the TV comes on, or if you're deaf and you see the TV comes on and you see me in a specific chair, I set the stage so you can predict what is about to happen next. And then that stage changes over time. And I start marking for, you know, the hip popped out, the head resting down. The hardest part in the training is switching from mark and reward to what I call treats from the sky. So uh, deaf and blind dogs, tend to really look for the marker. And sometimes the marker be, brings too much excitement. So now I'm taking step, steps backwards and saying, uh, you know, I'm bringing out this excitement when I really wanna keep the dog just nice and chill. 
So what I tend to do is use a very low value treat. Sometimes I'll use Cheerios so the dog can't smell the treat because that's another really distracting part of deaf blind dogs is when they smell food, they can go crazy. Um, so even teaching to settle around food is around the whole is for the protocol as well. So then we switch from mark and treat to treats from the sky and you do differential reinforcement. It is, you know, you are really just marking for anything, you know, marking for really anything that you see that's not chaotic behavior and you extend the amount of time in which you give the treat and you just continue to what I like to call set the stage so the dog can take the puzzle pieces that you're giving them, put them together and see the whole puzzle at large of what you're expecting from them in that moment. That sounds so fantastic and so eloquently kind of put together. <laughs> Thank you for saying that. That's a huge compliment. <laughs> yeah, I, I love that for sure. It allows me to kind of almost picture what training that type of dog looks like with you. And it's really exciting. Yeah. You know, you and you have to think of smell. So smell is a really, really big part of it. So when you do practice these and you go, you know, the smell of your home is going to be much different than the smell of someone else's home. So if I bring my dog to a friend's house, I can't expect settling techniques right off the bat. You have to expect that the dog maps their area first. Usually this can take up to an hour, maybe two. Once you're starting to see the dog lay down on their own and maybe even you know, starting to feel more calm, then you continue with the relaxation protocol. So it's successful. This isn't just a year, the first year of training and then you're good or the first two years of training and now you have a well-behaved dog. I mean, I will say this will be for the rest of your dog's life because a new situation is like a new Disney theme park <laughs> and there's so many smells and so much input from different things that you will have to do the protocol probably every time and, and have to be okay with that. So that brings me to a question. What do you feel are, if there are any behavioral concerns that you might see in puppies or adolescents, especially adolescents with all those, you know, kind of hormones that you may not experience with seeing or hearing dogs? Yeah. So the only difference, honestly, would be neurological stuff. So if you were to see fly biting, which um, I'm not sure if you know what fly biting is, but it is almost like a precursor to a possible seizure or even it's when the dog jumps up into the air and it literally looks like it's trying to eat a fly. So if you're, start, if you're starting to see those types of things, those obsessive compulsive disorders, violent spinning, um, those would be the only differences that I would say between seeing and hearing dogs. However, I would say there's exaggerated things such as resource guarding is very, if you do not practice that a lot in the beginning, your, your deaf and blind dog will most likely resource guard uh, simply because they cannot tell when something is approaching or they can't tell until they've gotten to the point of ready to snap because they may not know how to communicate effectively. They play harder. So they they bite down harder when they're playing with other dogs. They bite down harder when they're playing with you. They just seem to be kind of that bull in the china shop <laughs> metaphor when it comes to those types of things. They also tend to, when it comes to deaf dogs, I tend, like I joked earlier in the podcast, I call them the Terminator dogs because I really feel as though, especially herding breed deaf dogs, they are just constantly scanning for stimulus. Uh, and they're just constantly looking, 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 looking. 
So that's more exaggerated. And I do think for blind dogs, the audio component is just very exaggerated. So you have to think about odd sounds and what may make them uncomfortable more than the, once again, I like to use the word exaggerated because it's more than just your average seeing and hearing puppy. That bus driving by is definitely going to freak out a seeing and hearing puppy, but a blind puppy who couldn't even see it coming and now all of a sudden it's driving past and then with the tactile uh, sensory of that wind going by or splashing, that might be even more catastrophic. So once again, exaggerated things that very similar to seeing and hearing, but just almost like on the 10th level. <laughs> that makes a ton of sense. And you did say their maturity or, you know, as we're starting to go through adolescence and in and around that age of maturity, are we going to see more of those issues start to crop up at that time for a lot of these dogs? And if so, what are there, like, are there things specifically to look out for? I think that's a fantastic question. I would say, you know, 85% of my clients are all on behavioral medication for some type of anxiety, whether it's spinning, reactivity, guarding, uh, even my own doc, my own doc is on behavioral medication. And I, it all started around seven months old. Uh, what I tend to notice, and this is where I actually think the seeing and hearing dog thing is the most comparable uh, because a lot of seeing and hearing dogs have big feels during adolescence as well. I just have noticed with deaf and blind dogs, it can turn more to aggression if not uh, picked up on quickly. So my own dog, Darla, I would joke that this is the time of her life when she talked to ghosts <laughs> um, because something <laughs> so cute. <laughs> this is the time period where really she would, she would just now I say stare at something, but she doesn't, you know, she can't see. So it would almost be like there was something in the middle of the room and she would just jump out of her skin. She would bark. It, we would try so hard to figure out what the trigger could have been. Sometimes it was staring at a wall. Sometimes it was, it was always at night. It was always when the sun went down, which is, these are all the common factors. Can I give you a scientific answer? I wish I could. Hopefully one day I can. <laughs> um, but some of the common factors are that it happens at more towards dusk when the sun goes down. It happens mostly during adolescence. So you may, I, any puppy person that comes to me, I will thoroughly dissect them on, you know, prepare around seven to eight months to start to see some type of what I call spooking. So startling things like that. Uh, so I, I will say that aggression I have noticed is a little bit higher, uh, and seizures. So this is also the time where, where you're, you're going to start to see seizures as well. So really what I like to say is you, everything I'm teaching you in puppyhood, you just really want to stay militant on three, even though that may have a, you know, weird kind of backbone to it. You want to stay militant at least for the first couple of years, you know, pack the same baby, pack the same puppy bag with you, have the same smells, bring the same toys, bring, um, you know, and I, I will be honest, I am an advocate for behavioral medication sooner than later. So if you're starting to see some spooking with vocalization, if you're starting to see some, I would just say spooking with vocalization, I would keep it right there. I, and your training techniques of find it games or engage, disengage, all of those things aren't working. What 
I tend to think is the brain is in such overload that there's no training that's happening. Your, your dog is simply in defense mode that they're not, I always say it's kind of like if someone's running at you with a knife and the person you know running with you is like, hey, Aaron, what's 10 times 10? I might not be able to answer that at that moment because I'm so freaked <laughs> out. <laughs> so if we can settle the system down, if we can settle the brain down, even if it's with just temporary medication at a low dose, we can make impactful behavior modification we can put be impactful behavior modification in place so that by a year or two years, they may be able to slowly wean off of these meds. Um, that's usually, like I said, ma a majority of my clients are on behavioral medications, either for seizures, for anxiety, and the um, impact that it has on their learning is so helpful. It is, is, is so helpful. I honestly think, Renee, for future, we need to have a little audience clapping and cheering for any time people <laughs> recommend behavioral medications. Woo! Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like I, it, it makes me so happy. We need to, we need to bring that like mental health to the forefront, not only for guardians, but for our dogs, like it, it matters so much. And it's, it makes me really happy that you kind of mentioned and went over that, but that kind of also brings me to the next question we have for you here. Are there any significant ways that these dogs, both deaf blind dogs, um, engage in play or metacommunications differently. I know you already mentioned um, that they tend to have less bite inhibition or a poorer or poorer bite inhibition. What what else are we looking for? Like what what are some of the different communications that they use? So honestly, play style, I don't notice too much of a difference other than breed play style. So breed to breed, you know, healers versus uh, boxers, things like that, because there are a lot of deaf boxers out there. I think the only difference I have noticed is that there's seeing and hearing dogs react differently to them. So sometimes seeing and hearing dogs are extremely weirded out by them. They don't, they, I think they move di differently in a sense of, you know, this is so sad to say, but Darla will run in and you can almost look, you can almost see the other dogs. And this is anthropomorphic to say this, but you can almost see the other dogs being like, what is wrong with you? Like, how did you not see that? You know. And so I think I see more of a difference instead of deaf and blind dogs, acting different. It's more so seeing and hearing dogs see them differently. I, I think their mannerisms are different. Uh, they, they can't, they can't look them in the eye because most of their eyes are sunk back. Um, so there's one group of dogs that are very weirded out by them and almost give them distance and don't really want to interact with them. The other case, for instance, if I use a deaf and blind dog in a lesson with a reactive dog, I actually most of the time see less of a reaction from that dog because the dog is not looking at them. The dog is not, can't really hear them that well. And the dog, the, the deaf blind dog is just kind of doing its thing. And the reactive dog doesn't feel that pressure or feel that social pressure from, you know, visual cues or anything like that. So once again, I actually think seeing and hearing dogs in one or two ways act more different towards deaf and blind dogs than the other, than the vice versa really interesting that you see I mean I work with a lot of reactive dogs and generally fearful dogs and I think that's that's quite a it's quite an astute observation that there isn't that confrontational behavior and so I think yeah, the dog's yeah. just like okay cool like you're you're not a threat yeah. <laughs> you can't even see me like yeah. <laughs> yeah sometimes my clients are like when are you gonna bring your seeing and hearing dogs like it's like why you know like my dog's doing so well with this one so <laughs> 
funny. So are there signs to look out for with a puppy when you are maybe going to the breeder? Um, you know, I think at a rescue, you're probably going to have that information before, but if you are going to a, to a breeder and you are looking for a puppy or you are a breeder and you have had some puppies, what are the signs you might look for? Because I know my, in my previous life, I was a veterinary technician and occasionally we would have dogs come in and the person would say, I think my puppy's deaf. Now <laughs> we would have yeah. to ascertain whether the puppy where we were just like, is your puppy not listening to you? Or you actually think your puppy, you know, cause some people think my puppy's deaf. Like I call his name. He doesn't, well, does he know his name? Um, <laughs> So what are the, you're just not that interesting. I don't know how to tell you. Um, so what are some signs that you can look out for, um, for dogs that potentially we feel are blind or are deaf? Yeah. So there's in the beginning of the podcast, we talked a little bit about how dogs can be blind and deaf. And one of the things I said was a double neural or was uh, genetic. So typically those dogs will have almost an albino look to them. So they will most, they will be mostly all white, including, you know, they will have very pink eye sockets. They will have, I mean, they like, you know, pink noses. And I know a lot of puppies have pink noses, but there's just this very albino look to them. Um, and that's, that is one box to check off. The other box is just the development of the eyes. Now, obviously with a breeder, you have to wait a specific amount of time, but once you've noticed all the other puppies, their eyes are kind of big and out there that and you're not seeing any eye development from the questionable puppy that's because they might have microophthalmia so that would be an indicator for blindness hearing is kind of your typical hearing like clapping right behind them um i don't really go to dog whistles because i want to be able to hear it too <laughs> so just thinking of sounds to do however i just really want to put out there, do not try to like bang a pan while your puppy is sleeping to see if that wakes them up because there's all the, you know, the whole thing about startling and everything like that. So just simple things while they're awake. Uh, but once again, that coat color. Now, if there is a neurological issue going on, there will be more mobility issues. They might be walking different. They might be running into things. They might be. Um, so if the dog does not have that albino look, I will be honest, that's more detrimental. So if it is a regular looking type dog and they do have eyes, but they are running into things or they're not hearing things, that means to me there's more of a neurological issue, which could be more detrimental, actually. Yeah, I think that, you know, that's such an excellent answer as far as especially the advice to not, let's not startle our puppies. <laughs> to figure out like, there are there are other ways that you can do that. just a gentle kind of tapping on the floor like yeah. you said a little bit of a clap like you don't need to necessarily go the route of um you know because dogs at hearing if they are hearing is going to be superior so all of those things that we would think of as you know i'm just going to check if you can hear me and then you drop a, a load of pans <laughs> Uh, that for the puppy is, is probably going to be a significant, <laughs> a significant event that happens. <laughs> well, and I also get a lot of people saying like, oh, maybe they can hear me because they dropped the pan, but 
you have to think about they're so in tune with vibration that yeah. they could have felt the vibration. I get that a lot, actually. Well, I think my deaf dog can actually hear me. Like with my own dog, Darla, she has partial hearing. So when the wind is blowing and I try to call her name, that is that is not going to happen. <laughs> um, but if we're in a quiet room and I use a specific sound that's been conditioned as a positive to give a positive emo- emotional response, then she does come if the, all the, you know, like we said, the stage is set correctly. But you just have to, you can't just... Um, go off of that. Now, if you're also questioning it, there is something called a bear test, a B-A-E-R test, which will test the dog's hearing as well. Always, always, always recommend going to the ophthalmologist. That's, you know, even mm-hmm. if you think your dog's eye ocular health is fine, your dog at a very early age might be building cataracts, things like that. So I just always recommend as soon if you do bring home a blind puppy or a deaf or blind puppy to definitely just book that ophthalmologist appointment sooner than later. That's really, really, really wonderful. Great advice. Um, so we're going to get down to the nitty gritty here. Uh, the next question that I have for you, <laughs> what would you recommend avoiding when getting a deaf and or blind puppy? I know that I've heard many, many people mention, and I think you have as well, that don't get one just because you feel bad for them. So let's touch on that a little bit. That is my favorite question. <laughs> Anyone could ever ask me. <laughs> so yeah, and that is because I am so I am aggressively passionate about not getting a deaf and blind dog or a deaf blind, or a deaf dog or a blind dog because you feel bad for it. You see, especially with the rise in TikTok videos, um, there, you know, deaf blind puppies are a, a viral thing, actually, uh, especially on TikTok of people getting them and they, they put this kind of sad music behind it. And it's this kind of very, oh, my gosh, you, you know. We feel so bad for that dog kind of thing. And I think people have to realize that it is a lot of work. You're, this isn't, um, you're going to be training and working with this dog the rest of its life. It's not Lassie. It is not going to you know, be the dream dog that one day you've done all this training and you don't have to worry about it as much. Your dog is going to go through things like any seeing and hearing dog, really, your dog is going to go through things throughout its life that you're going to constantly be working on and switching it. The older it gets and the more environments you switch up, or if you decide to have a child, that is a very big deal to think about. Uh, I know my partner and I are hoping to bring a child in um, into our family. And we have, I mean, being a gay couple, we have to plan it anyway, but you know, we have, we have big plans for our one dog to practice baby sounds, to practice smells of baby stuff, to way in advance, more than just before I find out if I'm pregnant or not, simply to desensitize and have enough time. So if you decide to bring home a dog who is deaf, blind, or deaf and blind, my biggest thing is just education. This is not something you should just read things on social media and not have any help with because you may be missing crucial little anxiety signs here and there that one day you have a tornado that you have to deal with. So not feeling bad for them, educating yourself on what to do and continuing the training. If I could bold italic underline that, just continuing the training and giving your dogs mental stimulation other than their backyard. I have so many sensory things in our backyard, like a pool for audio and tactile for, I have different plants that she can smell. I have little jumps here and there. She can figure out how to go. I have digging, you know, kiddie pools with dirt so she can dig because 
just like any seeing and hearing dog, they will get bored and get themselves into trouble. However, their trouble can be more so like compulsive disorders, you know, relentless barking, spinning, um, ways that their needs are just not met. The other thing to think about is they are breed before their disability. So they are a border collie before a deaf border collie. They're an Australian shepherd before a deaf blind Australian shepherd. They're a boxer before a deaf boxer. So, you know, you really need to consider the, the genetic disposition of these dogs and what they're bred to do and how you can scratch that itch, as I like to say, because your deaf blind border collie is gonna be nippier than your seeing and hearing one. Uh, and you just need to, like I said, everything is exaggerated. So if you don't continue the training, you could have a runaway freight train, literally. <laughs> no I <laughs> love that. I think we need an applause as well. Whenever someone <laughs> talks about looking at your dog, you know, and their breed and the genetic, we just, yeah. <laughs> because I love that you, um, you said that, that you have to look at the dog individually first before that label of the, the disability on the dog. So yeah, love it. Beautiful. When you were saying it, I was like nodding, like, yes, Erin. <laughs> same, yes. same, same. <laughs> um, and you know, it's, it's sometimes challenging to talk about, but, um, what kind of support is out there for maybe a breeder or, um, someone who maybe has taken on one of these dogs and they've realized, it's not compatible with their life or it's just too much of a commitment. What kind of rescues or organizations are out there to help support dog guardians if they do come across having a dog as part of their life, which has disabilities and they're having that honest conversation with themselves to say, this isn't something that they can handle. Yeah. So let's, we're definitely going to talk a little bit more about the harder parts of um, this. So I'm also an advocate, which is uh, uh, for saying as hard as it is to say that not all of, not every deaf and blind dog or out, let's just stick to deaf blind dogs. Not every deaf blind dog will be a successful dog. And sometimes we have to make tough decisions because of neurological issues, seizures, you know, aggression. So there are specific rescues that I know of, at least in the United States, that do sp strictly take in these dogs. That's going to be the one that I volunteer for and work for is gonna be Speak St. Louis. Others are going to be Keller's Cause, Pink Heart Rescue, Deaf Dogs of Oregon. Um, there's, there's Speak for the Unspoken. There's quite a bit that will take in disabled dogs. So I will strictly speak for the ones that I have volunteered for. And sometimes when you get adopters that adopt these puppies and then we don't hear from them from years later, we come back and it's serious, serious aggression issues. And I have to think of it just like any seeing and hearing dog. And the question I have to ask myself is if this dog were to be loose out in public, what would happen? And so that's why I really want to advocate that if you don't continue the training, you will end up with a dog that unfortunately will not be able to survive in a human's world. And because of the level it has gotten to of anxiety or aggression or anything like that. So it's a tough world, but there are rescues that specialize in it. Um, 
that I believe that there are more and more veterinary behaviorists that are starting to educate themselves on deaf and blind dogs. Um, and there's only really a handful of us, uh, two handfuls in the country that even will work with these dogs. I know many of my clients have been turned away from, from trainers simply because the trainer wasn't sure how to uh, handle it. So that's why I do like to say I specialize in them simply because I want people to have the faith that I've been there. I have seen the worst case scenario. I've seen the best case scenario. And where I do believe I want to give every deaf blind or deaf blind dog a chance, I have to leave room in knowing that not every single one is healthy mentally, emotionally um, to be able to, to handle, unfortunately, a human's world. I really love that. And I, um, <laughs> growing up, well, you mentioned Lassie before growing up, I was obsessed with Lassie. I've been obsessed with dogs from a very young age mm -hmm. and, um, Keller's claws is one that I have been following for a while, mostly because she deals with rough coated collies. Yeah. And so I think it might've been um, I'm not very much on TikTok because um, I support my own mental health. Yeah. And, <laughs> <laughs> but I think, was it you who maybe I saw something about potentially adopting um, a rough coated collie? <laughs> so, yes, that is me. I, uh, the rescue that I, um, and now this podcast is going to, I'm interested to see this podcast is going to come out after I make the decision, but, um, yes, the rescue that I volunteer for and work for, they are bringing in two rough coat collies, puppies. One is they're both blind and they're a boy and a girl. And, um, that's, you know, when I was saying earlier that we're planning for children, I am really considering bringing one home because I have a senior dog that is most likely going to retire with my parents and Darla, my fully blind and partially deaf dog does not, she does well by herself, but prefers at least the company of another, knowing there is another dog in the house pretty much. Um, and if we do decide to have children, having that dynamic of being able to have Darla go out in the backyard with another dog, being able to have that other dog be raised by a dog who would be a great mentor dog. Um, it kind of, the puzzle pieces feel really good. We're still talking to the fiance. So, <laughs> but yes, that was my video. <laughs> oh, Erin, you have my vote just so yes. I can, I might be on TikTok a little bit more if you get, if you get a Rucka. I love I had one, it's a very sad story. I had one for a very short time. My grandmother adopted one and they surprised me. I went over to my grandmother's house and there was this collie and I was like, oh my God, I was just losing it. Um, and then she ran away after a week and I was like oh, oh, heartbroken oh, forever. I mean, Maybe she really was lassie. <laughs> <laughs> she oh, had to go and help someone else but yeah. exactly <laughs> oh yeah that I mean that is one of the selling points to the fiance is like they are such I mean I, that's what I said I was like I breed specific I mean they're amazing they are an amazing breed and I am a herding dog girl but they are like the chill herding breed dog you know <laughs> and and uh and the one thing I will have to say is that they're not double Merle, they're sables. And so um, if they're really just only blind now, I don't know anything about the puppies quite yet. I'd like to know a little bit more, but if they really are just blind, I think we would have less likely, I never know, but with double Merles, there's so much additional health issues that you really have to think about. And so the, that was kind of the appealing part is that I could work with a disability, feel very comfortable about it. And the other thing is if we had children, the blind dog could hear the baby. 
I think that would be less of a startle factor than if we had a deaf dog that couldn't hear the baby. So just things to think about. I'm one of those people that thinks like five years in the future, you know, so. Yeah, well, you absolutely. know what too, like, I can't believe we haven't said it already. Congratulations on that choice though, um, of looking oh. into bringing a new one into your family. Yeah. That's so exciting. I've I been... want it to be the right fit. Thank you so much. I'm going to be yeah. very picky. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I definitely mean both for dog and child. I don't, I don't think you get to pick the latter. That's um, true. <laughs> Yeah. Well, we do get to plan. I mean, like I said, being a queer couple, we do get to plan pretty to the T, which is really nice. You know, that is phenomenal. That is really great. And honestly, yeah, congratulations. Cause I can't imagine the difficulties that come with that. And you're a badass for putting your nose out there and doing that. I think that's wonderful. Absolutely. I, I, I think if I didn't have the home set up, oh my goodness. I mean, we live on two acres in the woods and we have a pup. I mean, there's a puppy room in my house. You know? There's like oh. a whole fun room that's for dogs. So if I don't think if Jealous. Case, you know, if the average person came up to me and was like, Hey, I'm an average person who has two blind dogs and wants to have a baby. I would, my jaw would drop, you know? <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. but I do feel comfortable that I, if I, I'm very much about documenting my experiences and, and honestly building webinars off of my experiences. So I'm hoping I can connect with mommies a little bit more on that. You can have a disabled dog, but you really, really, really need to plan it out. And how are you, you know, I can help them, you know, how to plan that out. So, yeah, that's really exciting, honestly, because that's one of the the things that, and I hate to say it, but I'm going to say it. I, when I see a pregnant woman walk into the shelter, looking to adopt an animal, whether cat, dog, special species or other, my heart sinks a lot of the time because I'm like, especially if they're a first time mom, I'm like, you do not know what you're getting into just with this kid yet. And they, and so many people have this, like, they really want to raise a dog around their child or, you know, they really want to have them like grow up together and be besties and all of those things. And I'm like, as much as that is such a wonderful thought, what you see in the movies, like Marley and me is not going to happen to everybody, you know? So yeah. it's kind of like, it, it's I, don't, I don't know if they want Marley and me. <laughs> Fair. They're Fair. probably looking for the opposite of Marley and me. <laughs> well, even Lassie had to go through dog school, right? So, yeah. 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 I mean, I, and that's the one thing is, you know, we're not planning to have children for gosh, a little while. So I'm like, I would like my dogs to be trained and ready to go so that in our next chapter, I'm not doing the puppy thing and the baby thing at the same time. There's just no way, you know, I just, and if I have, you know, Darla is at a point where I feel, I mean, we've had a couple of foster puppies here and she's a really good mentor dog. And I've never, it's very euphoric as a dog trainer to have a mentor dog because I've never really had one. I've always had aggressive dogs Um, and they were great for lessons, but not great mentors, I would say. Um, And so this is the one opportunity that I'm looking in the mirror, like, wow, I might have this kind of golden ticket right now that will help her in the long run to have a buddy and me that, you know, I don't have to have, like I said, we have this nice property that I can have space from the dogs and things like that. So, like I said, if the average person came to me and said this, I would probably like, I don't know, (laughs) but it's, it's the right like we've been talking about this whole podcast, it's the right timing, it's the planning, it's the education, it's the, it takes a lot to prepare to bring a disabled dog in. And I truly believe if you have children, you should, you should wait um, either until they're much, much older 
or, um, you know, plan way far in advance. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's very, very fair. I, oh, yeah. I was going to say too, one of the things that you mentioned there, how having a mentor dog, I know we're probably way over our time at this point, but yeah, sorry. <laughs> how often do you see, um, like Alelo mimetic learning with deafblind dogs? Like, is it, is it prevalent? Like, do you see it more? Um, I see it as a plus and as a minus all in the same thing. So how I suggest raising your deaf and blind puppy uh, or deaf or blind is independence first. So I, I wouldn't like, I wouldn't consider your mentor dog, a mentor dog until your puppy can at least handle being by themselves before. Like, I do not like over attachment. Uh, I, I don't like the whole idea of like, I got my blind dog, a seeing eye dog. I'm really not into that. I think that leads to codependency. I think that leads to unhealthy attachment. I mean, God forbid something happened to the quote unquote seeing eye dog. And now that blind dog doesn't know what to do. Um, I, so really there needs, I, I treat it like litter mates. Um, you know, there has, there can be healthy attachment, but your dog should be independent and they should have their own time with you and their own individualness, if that makes any sense. Absolutely. I, I agree. I advocate that for all dogs. I really feel like, especially in a multi-dog household, you know, your dogs need individual time with you. That one-on-one -on -one time is so important. And when you mentioned just about getting, getting your, your dog, like a seeing dog, you know, just getting your dog, another dog in general, like these, you know, again, social media, you know, I'm not trying to be a hater, but we see, I, you know, the best thing is getting your dog, a dog. And it's like, no, <laughs> don't do it. <laughs> Exactly. And it's, it's even more so with deaf and blind dogs, because now you're just teaching your deaf and or blind dog to be so resilient, you know, to be so codependent on this other dog. And I always think worst case scenario, like I said, if something happens to the other one. And so I love that Darla loves other dogs. And I love that um, one day she might be able to have an, an additional sibling, but I love that she's her own dog first. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think that brings us to kind of, you know, talking a little bit about codependency and, and that kind of thing is, you know, what are the misconceptions that people have about deaf, blind, and or deaf and blind dogs? Yeah, so they will, the other, like I stated in just a couple minutes ago, is that in the beginning, sometimes I felt like a unloving mother because I taught a lot of, I left her alone a lot with enrichment activities. I did not want her to be so overly attached to my smell that it became a separation anxiety. I had to know where you were. You make me feel safe. So once again, I'm not trying to be a hater either, but on social media, you see a lot of deafblind dog owners say like, oh, I could tell she needs to know where I am. So that's been really hard. I, I always need to, I always need to be next to her and or next to him. And that's simply not simply, simply not true. You really, uh, I recommend just like any seeing and hearing dog, I recommend puppy play pens, tons of enrichment activities, a nice schedule. Um, I actually 
ask a lot of deafblind dog owners to observe their dogs from afar so that the dogs can't smell them, that they're there, but they're watching their body language. Like, what do they look like right before they poop? What do they look like when they're about to spin in a circle or get anxious? What is their threshold? Can they handle just self-entertainment? Um, I'm all about self-entertainment. You know, can your dog, can your deafblind dog self-entertain itself without you around? That will make for a healthy state of mind. So I don't know if that's misconception, but more so just some additional tips on kind of what to look out for. That's so great. I really appreciate all of the uh, great information that you've shared with us today. I think it's, you know, it's going to be really helpful for a lot of our listeners, especially those that maybe already have deaf blind dogs. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you may have heard the podcast before, but something we do like to do is we like to bust some myths. So yeah. I think it's a great <laughs> That's my sound bite. Bust some myths. Well, yeah, like we, we need a theme song now. <laughs> Just it. like an explosion by bust some myths. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, <laughs> so the first one that I have for you, which we did kind of, we touched on this, but I think um, just giving more of a kind of direct answer to it. Um, are disabled dogs harder to teach than maybe a seeing or hearing dog? I think for the average person, yes. I think for a trainer, uh, it might intrigue them. <laughs> I think it's not, maybe I shouldn't say harder. It's not, it's just different. And you have to think outside of the box and, you know, a double tap onto their gentle, <laughs> a double gentle tap onto their butt might not be their sit. You know, where common cues for seeing and hearing dogs are sit and down and shake, you might have to get creative. Um, you might have to do your down might be, you know, a swipe up their chest. So I think it's more so because there isn't an encyclopedia, there isn't an alphabet out there and you have to create your own alphabet. However, once you do, and you teach yourself what that alphabet is, and then teach your puppy that alphabet, then you have your own really cool, like I said earlier, Morse code and your own language together. So maybe not harder, just different. Yeah, that's so great. Um, I was honestly just thinking as you were saying that uh, one of my clients that's a Boston Terrier that is deafblind, which I have not worked with that many small deafblind guys. I have one that's a, um, a Chihuahua mix that's deaf with an eye gone and then another, uh, the Boston Terrier. And that is actually one of his cues is a swipe up his chest. But for the life of me, I can't remember what it is because I haven't seen them in a while. But oh. yeah, that's really, really interesting, actually, because, you know, yeah, I guess you never know, too. And I think it's also important as well to kind of touch on the fact that just because you have a deafblind dog also doesn't mean they're necessarily going to be comfortable with all of those things to start with as well, right? Especially if you are rescuing or it's an older dog who maybe hasn't been taught all of those things, you're really going to need to condition those cues and make sure that those cues are positive and not scary. And the first few times you do them, they might be, and, you know, you might have to be comfortable switching up your cues or changing things and, um, getting that dog really comfortable with tactile things in general. Right. Like, do you have a lot of experience in terms of that? Like, have you seen that a lot? Oh my gosh, that is such a great question. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I think every one of my clients has something different, uh, simply because, I mean, I joke to even my seeing and hearing clients that if you wanted to teach your dog to sit by saying the word watermelon, I would teach you, you just have to be consistent. <laughs> so it's, you know, you have to figure out what, it's a lot of trial and error. It's a lot of figuring out 
what does the dog respond to? So for instance, Darla and I, so once again, Darla is fully blind and partially deaf. We actually are trying to compete in canine freestyle. So anyone who's listening, canine freestyle is basically like doggy dancing <laughs> and you have to move in these graceful gestures and basically it's trick dog stuff, but with dancing and with music and you have to move together. So with Darla, when I try to get her to go around me, to go through my legs, it's all of what she just responds to. Does she respond to a swipe and then a boop? Does she, you know, do I do a moving chin rest to get her to move? It's, it's a lot of figuring things out, which is why to the average person, it might be frustrating. If you're into behavior and into training, it might be simply, you know, like for the three of us, it might be very fun. Um, but it's a lot of trial and error. And once the dog successfully responds to a type of touch or boop or swipe, then you want to, you know, kind of run with that. And you, then you want to add, you know, you want to just repeat yourself, you know, mark and reward, mark and reward after the cue. So yeah, every dog is a little different on how they learn. I have one client who she has a bad back and she can't bend down. So her, her cue is to just a double tap the dog's foot to lay down. I thought that was really creative. So it's what works for you and what you honestly are going to remember because you're going to be the one asking it. <laughs> I love that you have mentioned doggy dancing. <laughs> I just as a side note, <laughs> and I really want to do a podcast on this, I think, but Amazing. Um, I, I watched, a, I think it was a Netflix, of course it was about dogs. Um, it was a Netflix about dogs and they had this, this dancing and I'd never come across it before. And yeah. instantly within about a minute, I, I said to Scott, I want to do that. And I want to yeah. do that with Lycan. Like we would be. It's really so fun. Good. I love it. I, I wish that like, I, maybe I could do some online stuff with it, but I really would be into it. And when I have more time, it is something on my to-do list because I just think it just looks so, um, and you're working in, you know, in sync together and, you know, you really are kind of dancing. It just, oh, if you haven't seen it, it is, and there's competitions, right? So people get really, really competitive and involved in it. I, I would live there. And you usually have like a theme, like usually you'll have like a, you know, one of, so one of the most famous canine freestylers, freestylers is Michelle Poyer. Uh, and she, I mean, some of her routines are so cool. They are themed. They, you know, she wears a costume. It's just, and it's beautiful. And now getting into it myself, it's so fun. And it's Darla, loves it. She absolutely, I mean, she prances in the ring. She has so much fun. And to think that this dog who can't even see what I'm asking her to do, but yet is following my gestures and and excited to, to participate is like I said, it's euphoric. It's so fun, you know, and it's such a bonding opportunity. I love it. I think it's amazing. And yeah, (laughs) absolutely. It's it's so great. And you're right about the costumes and everything. I just, oh, I'm obsessed. (laughs) The music, picking the music is really fun too. (laughs) 
Yeah, I think I, that was another TikTok that I think I saw where you were dancing to uh, Dolly Parton's Coat of Many Colors. Coat of Many Colors. Yeah, that's why <laughs> I, so I, I brought that to my class and I told the teacher, I was like, okay, this is the song I'm thinking about, Coat of Many Colors. And so she put it on and all of the class was, um, so I actually joined a club locally. And the only reason I did is I was invited from a very famous trainer. Her name is Deb Bauer and she has been teaching deaf blind dogs for a very long time. And she actually wrote a book on it and we are friends. And so she, and she saw some of the work I've been doing with Darla and she invited me. She has a deaf and blind rough coat collie to circle back. Um, and his name is Vinny. And she has won a couple things with him and she thought we were good enough to come. And now we have this local group, but long story short. So I put the coat of many colors on and we're doing our little, uh, prereq you know to show what we can do and the teacher's like this is really good but I, I need I need you to go faster the music has to be faster so I was just like oh my goodness how are we going to go faster you know so she puts on a couple songs and puts on a couple songs and she <laughs> I, I I love telling this story she finally puts like dun, 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 let's go girls and it was Shania Twain <laughs> like them going out tonight amazing <laughs> like, amazing all the, class, like, all the classes cheering me on Darla is prancing and like swinging her tail and the teacher was like girlfriend that's your song so when you finally see me post my video it will be with the Shania Twain song <laughs> that is that's awesome. exciting yeah yeah I can't wait I for love that. Shania and we, we have a horse, so I have a lot of cowboy stuff. So I think that's going to be our theme. Oh, amazing. I am yeah. living for that. I have to see that. You have to tag me in that. I want to see our that. Our competition will be in November. So I'll post a video. I love it. I love it. Do, do you have a partner like I have in a partner who is going to never let you live it down, though? They're going to support you in every part yes. of it, but you will never hear the end of it. <laughs> Yes, uh, completely. A hundred percent. Like we'll be cheering front row, but we'll also like be giggling the entire time. Yeah. I love that so much. So much. I'm very excited. I, like I said, I, I loved Code of Many Colors, but you really got to jive. I mean, you got to move in these competitions. So I guess I had to go faster. I was so honored to be invited to it. And I'm just so thankful to be on here and to talk about something I'm so passionate about. And I just, like I said, I'm very grateful for the opportunity. I love both of your works uh, or both of your work. I love following Renee on social media. I think both of you just put out some amazing content and I just love being a part of this kind of wonderful, upbeat, uh, positive dog training community. That's so awesome. And thank you so much. I laugh. I laugh a lot with that because I very much am not, um, I'm not, I'm not a big face in, in the dog training community. I try not to be. So when people have actually like, actually know who I am, it's, it's a little heartwarming for me. <laughs> Yes, yes. I right before the podcast, I was like, I have to find out who Cassie is, <laughs> you know, and I've been looking at some of your stuff and just what you and Renee put out. It's we just I love that we have this really amazing community and I'm so grateful to be a part of it with you too. So Aaron, the next question, um, we're still looking at those myths. What about when we talk about our dog's other senses? How do you feel along those? Are they heightened? Is that something you absolutely see? Or is that just a myth? What are we looking at there? Great question. I, without um, getting into too much of a science detail, my personal opinion is that they are completely heightened. <laughs> uh, I have noticed some dogs are so sensitive, 
like we mentioned before, some dogs are so sensitive to touch and you have to go about it in a very gentle way and figure out how they learn best. Some dogs are very sensitive to smell, um, strong smells, I don't, I'd like to avoid if I want a dog to maybe stay on course in the house, uh, I will maybe use lavender, something like that, but I won't use anything heavier than that. I actually, when bringing home uh, deafblind puppies, I really won't, I'll make sure there's no perfume or anything like that as well going on. Or I don't also like to have strong laundry soap or laundry detergent. So I really strongly believe that yes, other uh, other senses are so heightened to the point that I think deafblind dogs, their brains, I like to call it hot wiring, that sometimes when they're in a new environment and their brain is just trying to get all the sensory input it can to put the puzzle pieces together, sometimes I like to joke, well, maybe not joke, but I like to say that I think their brain hot wires is that they just kind of like, oh my gosh, this is too much for me. And that's maybe when those freak out moments happen. Um, so senses I, that I have noticed are extremely heightened if the dog is deaf, eyesight, we keep, I keep using that terminator term um, for, once again, for blind dogs, the audio uh, is just hearing is good, I believe is, is heightened. Sometimes I joke those dogs can hear a pin drop. Um, and for deaf blind dogs, sense of smell is wild to the point that most deaf blind dogs, you have to use, like I mentioned below, like a Cheerio for treats in the beginning because they're so crazed over the smell of food. Um, and same with tactile or touch. They can be very sensitive to touch. Sometimes these dogs have never been pet or know how to cuddle or anything like that. So you can't expect all of those things in the beginning. Aww. I know. As soon as you said not that. cuddled. I know. Aww. I was like... How? Yeah, my, la my last foster was very weird about cuddling. She did not like to be held like that, which is... Really funny because she is like an over the top cuddler now at eight months old. So, um, but yeah, she was very sensitive to touch. Oh, that's too funny. I'm going to ask something. And Renee, please feel free to remove this later. I might just be special. Um, are you calling them Terminator because the Terminator has that red eye that scans things? <laughs> yes, exactly. Oh my God. Okay. I've been sitting here thinking, and I'm like, what so like oh Arnold Schwarzenegger God. always like in the Terminator he scanned everything yes. like with, with oh, his my yeah, that's... <laughs> oh my goodness oh my god I've been sitting that's... here oh my gosh I've been sitting here thinking this whole time <laughs> that you were talking about just like they're like beasts they're like let's do this like so break sorry. down walls they're like and then I'm like no 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 she must mean the robotic eye oh wow I do okay. yes yes <laughs> I did think it was the, what you thought Cassie because Scott has a <laughs> It probably says a lot about me, but um, Scott often calls me like the Terminator because he's like, um, I'm just like, duh, 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 duh. like I get things done. I'm very like determined to get things done. So like, that's a, that's a thing that we'll say, or he'll be like, are you like, duh, 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 duh. so I thought it was that I thought that the dog oh was really goodness. determined yeah. and like, you know, just gonna like, yeah, get oh through God, everything. I'm so sorry. Definitely. But, no, not funny. no, it's fine. Either works, I think. <laughs> But either works, I think, because like, yeah. yes, I was imagining with the collies and stuff, if they're just like eye stalking, you know, like it is that kind of mode of get it. It is. Yes, it is. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So that oh, kind of the goodness. same thing, right? We were both kind of thinking, but yeah, it was more, yeah. more the robotic eye for sure. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I'm glad I asked. Yeah, me too. <laughs> me too. <laughs> yeah, that's good. <laughs> and it. as a side note. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, we'll jump into the next one here. Um, so 
the the next kind of myth that we want to drop down there again here's where we insert that myth busting uh, little dance and song we myth got now busting. <laughs> <laughs> all right what about activities activities with your deafblind dog what can and can't you do i know that physical activities are typically looked at like deafblind dogs have a difficult time with them it's not for them hiking swimming um you know those types of things what are your thoughts on that is that a myth is that truth is it true for some not for others what does that look like Totally a myth. So you can go hiking with your dogs. We go canoeing with our dog, with our deafblind dog. Um, she loves to go swimming. Obviously, you need to keep safety in mind. So some things that I would recommend is conditioning your dog to goggles. So if your dog is like Darla, their eyes can get very sensitive in sunlight. So having rec specs or particular types of dog goggles can save their ocular health from getting sunburned or if they run into things <laughs> um, that they'll have some kind of cushion. I also recommend long lines. You know, if your dog, if your deafblind dog likes to go swimming, you need to keep them on a long line because there's no way to call them back. So making sure that safety is always, always put first. Um, but yeah, they can do a ton of different things. I think the only thing they physically can't do would be agility um, in a sense of competing. But you can even on a leash and very gently and with some coaching, they can even do the obstacles, just not at a running com competition pace. That makes a heck of a lot of sense. Um, I'm just going to jump in here to say like it made me think as well, because this isn't just something that only deafblind dog owners are going to deal with because the majority of dogs as they go into old age can become deafblind dogs or can, yeah. you know, lose a lot of their sight or lose a lot of their hearing. So this really is important for everybody. And it just kind of dawned on me, although obviously I know this, you know, it just kind of dawned on me like, heck yeah, I am going to have to think about that because, you know, my guy just turned 10 and we do like a lot of backwoods camping where we hop cool. in the canoe and we're out there for three, four days. So like, yeah, that's hugely important, especially now that he's getting up there in age. So thank you for donning that one on me. <laughs> Yeah. And you actually brought up a really good point because if you think about this whole podcast, we've been talking about dogs who have had these disabilities from birth. So just to talk, just to, um, you know, trickle off of that, if you are experiencing a dog um, that is going deaf or going blind, I would seek help even before they fully get to that point. You want to be able to start conditioning some of those tactile cues, maybe some of those hand signals um, really early on so that when that transition is happening, it is not so scary. Um, and you really want to think about safety, making sure you're cushioning your home from certain corners. Uh, if you have sharp table edges, maybe putting a little pool noodle on there. Uh, but you really want to plan ahead of time for that kind of stuff as well such a valid point is that most most dog guardians are going to have to deal with this or in some sense because uh, same with me and Nero's approaching 10 and a half and you know we're constantly kind of looking at his eyes especially and that's something that Scott mentions to me a lot is to reassure me because I'm <laughs> I'm definitely like you know is he okay and so worried about his his health as he grows older but you know, say his eyes are very clear, you know, his eyes look really good. So always kind of in the back of my mind, I'm thinking about our dogs getting older and what that's going to look like and what things they might encounter and how that's going to, how that's going to impact them. The octave drop in your voice there, when you said that hit my heart, <laughs> not going to oh, lie. I am just, <laughs> you know, how I feel about Nero and, uh, you know, watching yeah. him get older is, anticipatory grief that is what I have is oh, you know just yes. that 
but let's i'm not going to drag the podcast down it's a relatable feeling it's it's yeah. real life i mean we we will all experience those feelings <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, that's one of the things that I think that, you know, he does that reassures me is like, you know, his eyes are very bright, his eyes are very clear. Um, and yeah, I think it is, it, it's one of those things that we all have to consider in, in some sense is how do we handle those situations and the emotional side for our dogs, right? For a dog who maybe has had those abilities all of their life and then loses those abilities, that can be such a traumatic um, event for them and so disorientating. And I think if we are prepared, like you said, Aaron, we can just help them through that as, as best as possible. Exactly. Exactly. And it, it can be fun. Um, looking back, I lost a dog about three years ago. And if I knew some of the things I knew now, I would do some things differently uh, just to be able to kind of hold their hand to say, you know, hold their paw along the way, <laughs> along the, the next chapter, you know. Yeah, absolutely. I think we all have those kind of pangs of, of guilt of things that we, we wish we knew sooner. And hopefully, you know, people listening to, to this podcast are, you know, contemplating that. And, and I think you've given lots of great advice and great insight into what it's like, you know, for, for dogs in that. And also the considerations of, thinking outside the box, right? So in, you know, if your dog who is older, maybe is a seeing or hearing dog and, and all those, what would that be like? And what are those kind of adjustments or compromises that you might need to make to help your dog adjust during that period? Norco just let me know that his compromise is that I stopped talking about it. He just looked up at me from the bed at my feet, got up and left. So <laughs> he's sick my shit. I'm never aging. I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. He's like, um, lady, we yeah. got this. It's fine. <laughs> yeah. Same with the, every time I'm like, Scott, do you think? And he's like, he's fine. He's great. He's healthy. He looks great. And then, you know, he's like bouncing around, like, you know, agitating lichen or, you know, just being his normal bouncy self. And I'm like, okay, we're good. <laughs> <laughs> and then the puppy comes out and you're just like, oh, right. Yes. Yes. I do yeah. have this dog. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we will move on because I could talk about Nero and all of that forever and ever and ever in my, <laughs> my growing sadness of, you know, dogs don't live nearly as long enough as, as we want them to. <sighs> um, anyway, back to our, <laughs> our myth busting. Um, mm -hmm. I think, you know, something that I sometimes hear, and I'm sure that you do, is that, you know, these dogs, uh, they can't see, they can't hear, sometimes both. Um, and so they might be more malleable to experiences that other dogs might not be. So, you know, looking at, you can do anything to a, a deaf or blind or deafblind dog, um, what are your thoughts on that? Because they're not aware of it, right? They, they can't see it happening. So it's okay, right? And I hey, want to say a precursor to that too. And, and I love this question. I absolutely love this question. I can't wait for your answer, Erin. But I'm sure that it's also applicable to all dogs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 100%. Cassie just nailed it right on the head right there. I mean, that is... If this could really go for all dogs is, but what I like to, you know, what I see a lot of the times is a, it's, it's kind of two drastic versions is a, they uh, over baby the dog 
almost to the point where it's, uh, you know, literally just babying the dog and, and coaxing them everywhere and leading them everywhere and not giving them this chance of independence whatsoever. Or you have this other, like, well, they're deaf and blind. Let's just take them. They'll be fine. They can't see or hear things, right? And it's that you don't think about all the other sensory input. You know, let's take the puppy to the farmer's market is never a good idea, whether the dog can see or hear the, the farmer's market or not. Um, so the biggest thing is get the deaf, uh, your deaf and or blind puppy comfortable in your house first. Then I like to say each couple of weeks, you expand a little bit more and more, and then you start to see what are some of the things, you know, with Darla's partial hearing, she didn't, she totally freaked out at the sound of dogs barking. She would go into quite a tizzy. So we practice with YouTube sounds, even before I remotely took her on a walk around the neighborhood to, um, that's the other thing. They're not going to walk very far. They don't know where they're going in front of them if they're blind. So don't expect these grandiose, regular puppy things, such as taking a walk with your dog or playing fetch or anything like that. Um, you, you're going to have to find ways and to play with them and talk to them and that are a little bit different um and but without babying them without catering to their every want and need i think that's such a good point i mean one of the things i think for all of us and we could probably agree is you know teaching that independence early on and it's really hard when you have this little puppy or that you know a rescue dog who comes with the the sad story that you just want them to have all the things and, you know, to have the support and things like that. But at the same time, you could be doing a disservice if you're giving too much of your time and kind of, you know, buying into that sob story, whereas the dog is still wanting to be treated like a dog, you know, to be able to have most of the normal things that every dog should have. So absolutely, I think we can, uh, and I deal with this a lot with rescue dogs is that, you know, we, I often will say to people, yes, it's okay to, to understand where the dog has come from, but let's not get too wrapped up in that because it's not about that history so much It's about where we're moving forward and where we're going to take your dog to now. So, you know, you might have a blind dog. And if that's what you're willing to take on, great, fantastic. Don't, like you said, don't focus on the, the blind, the blind part being that primary part, really looking at the dog as an individual and what the dog's needs are, and then modifying for that, that blindness, if you will. Exactly. Yeah. That's so wonderful, Renee. And one of the things too, I think you kind of, you kind of really got me with that one as well. You're just, you're hitting my heartstrings today. Um, <laughs> right. And is really that history. I can't remember the quote perfectly, but I think it's that history is not the best predictor of future behavior. Um, it can be helpful. It can be, you know, a great starting point. It can be, um, really good feedback and information in how to work with specific things or how to modify things for your dog, but it isn't an end all be all right. Um, because how many times have we looked at the history of dogs that have had like aversive tools used and we think, oh, well now they're, they're so aggressive to the point you can't even touch them because they're fearful of what's going to happen to them. And that doesn't mean we can't change that. Right. That doesn't mean we can't. Absolutely fix those problems. It doesn't mean we can't change that underlying conditioned emotional response, but that's the whole thing is we need to 
work with that conditioned emotional response, not just the behavior presenting on the surface. And that I think is leaps and bounds for our deafblind dogs as well, or any disabled dog in any way, whether it's, it's deafblind or otherwise that there are always things that we can do. And it's not just the behavior on the surface you're looking at, like, especially with our deafblind dogs, like making sure you're looking at what is actively leading to the behavior you're seeing on the surface and fixing that. Like, I'm sure there's a lot of environmental management that goes into these dogs as well. And that's probably why, as Aaron mentioned, it's such a, it's, it's almost like a, a a project that you put your heart in. Right. Um, it's one of those, like you, you need to know and understand getting into it, that this is going to be something you're doing for the life of the animal, not just for the first, you know, seven to nine months, like most dogs, you know, get that kind of thing at seven to nine months. Although we have, you know, every, everything should continue with learning and we should always be adding, we should always be managing and we should always be, uh, there should be always some element of upkeep, but for a deafblind dog, it might be more so is that kind of, is that right? Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, this is a, like we've been talking about, this is not most, I would say your average dog by three years old, if you put enough work in and you, you know, stay consistent, it's pretty great dog. You know, uh, if you had since birth or no traumatic events has happened, God, you know, perfect scenario. But with these guys, I would say this is a lifetime. I mean, this is a lifetime of settling and relaxation protocol. It's a lifetime of something new might pop up here and there, health issues, ocular issues, seizures. I mean, I am not here to scare anybody away, but I'm also here to be very realistic. Yes. Unrealistic expectations are the number one reason that I find that animals get surrendered or, you know, they need that extra help or whatever the case it may be is those, those unrealistic expectations. So that's, that's great that you said that. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. Yeah. I think that's something I deal with on a, on a semi-regular basis as well as just in general, you know, just with dogs, I think we, we expect, we expect so, so much. And it's sad because when the dog can't deliver, you know, sometimes we look at the dog as the problem where it's really it stems from us having that just really poor perception of of what, and you know, Lassie is a great example. I love Lassie, but never have I expected any of my dogs to be Lassie. Um, I think some people do, (laughs) they want Lassie, they want, you know, Rintinton, they want all of the dogs. Um, And it it is, it's fantasy. That's the the reason why is because it is fantasy and it it makes a great movie, but that's not real life. Exactly. And they all, they all end up with, with Toto who just runs. Yeah. <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah. Toto only got Dorothy in trouble. Okay. Let's just, yeah. Make that yeah. Really yeah. He's a typical terrier. He only got her in trouble. Exactly. He, he, he is the, the basket realistic. anyway. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's real. He is the realistic expectation that we should all have. <laughs> Oh my God, that's funny. <laughs> Amazing. Well, all of that being said, Erin, we know that obviously you do this for a living. It's why we have you here. So we know you have a course. Um, um, I'm told with a very cute name for our blind and deaf dogs. <laughs> can you give us a little more information about that and kind of where our listeners can find you and, you know, contact you? Yeah. So you can find most of 
most of all of my information about me and my dog training courses on my website. That's just going to be down to earth You previously had Brie Blakeman on in a previous podcast, and I am associated with her Noble Wolf Network. So I'm one of her trainers in the network, and I'm the if you could guess it, deaf and blind dog trainer. Um, and no. I have, <laughs> who would have thought? Um, so I have a couple courses through the Noble Wolf Network, all relating to deaf and blind dogs. But the biggest one that is a step-by-step guide through puppyhood, adolescence, and adulthood is called Getting a Sense. And it's catered to dogs who are deaf, blind, or deaf blind. That is so it. cute. <laughs> getting Is it spelt? Is it spelt how I think it's spelt? Getting a Sense? It is. Yep. Just getting it. Yeah. And I will say my fiance came up with it. I have to, I have to put that out there. I thought it was too cute. (laughs) I love that. Yeah. I love that so much. Yeah. Erin, I I really want to thank you for coming out and I will put all of your details in, in the podcast notes. So everyone can find you. And I just want to say, you know, you have my favorite all time TikTok. And (laughs) I love that. That gets me through my darkest days. Um, that, that, that makes Ozark me very one. happy because <laughs> sometimes you don't know, you think you're funny, you laugh at your own videos, but you don't know if other people think it too. So thank I you. have laughed hundreds of times. Like I am, I am actually embarrassed to say how many times I have watched that and laughed at it because I love the moment I saw it. I literally, I did the laugh out loud and I showed it to Scott and I was like, I got to share this with people. Like, I love it. It's, I was like, that's me. And then I showed it to Scott and he was like, that is you. And I was like, I I love it. <laughs> okay. Okay. I'm missing something here. Which one is this? <laughs> I did a really, I did a video about how a girl was saying, and I, I won't say the full extent of the language that was used, um, but there's a girl saying like, well, if you're, you, what, what was it Renee? Like if you, you can't stop me. And if you, it was like, and the whole theme was it about being a cookie pusher because positive reinforcement trainers are called cookie pushers online. Oh. And so it was like, if you're going to try and stop me, you're going to have to kill me. It was like, it's me. from that TV show. I know exactly what you're talking about now. Oh my goodness. Yes, it was Renee. You shared it on your Instagram. I do. I know exactly what you're talking about. And that's amazing. Yes. I was like, what am I missing here? No, I know exactly what you're talking about. So my, my TikTok is filled of just like dog trainer humor honestly like if you're a dog trainer I just try to cater to you and I try to make you laugh with like the things we all bicker about and the things we laugh about and then of course there's like training videos that I don't know if anyone watches so (laughs) it's good to know you are Renee thank you (laughs) I I love it it's so funny yeah it's it's uh, I can't say how I'm probably going to share it again so like when I release the podcast I will share it so everyone can enjoy it because it's just we love Ozark. So like we watched all yes, of the is, final, Ozark. it's good. It. Yeah. We watched all of the final one. And so there were a lot of people that were doing that quote mm-hmm. and obviously their own spins on it, but you nailed it, Aaron. It was <laughs> perfection. It makes, it, it, it feels good to know someone's watching. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And it was, um, if you're gonna, uh, what was it? Uh, if you want to stop me, you're going to have to effing kill yes. me. Yes. And I was like, I looked, I was typing on the computer. And then when I said effing kill me, I like stared into the camera and was like, kill me. It was like all about cookie pushing. I just love the end of it where you're looking like angelic and you're like, and I'm like, that is me on the internet. <laughs> That's what I probably look like to people like, 
don't you tell me about punishment. Like, <laughs> so good. Well, if anything, it. I have laughed really hard these last this last hour or so. <laughs> good. That's what we, we try. Yeah. <laughs> it's great. But yeah, thank you so much for coming on, Erin, and sharing all of your great, great gems on, you know, disabled dogs. It's been so nice having you and having that information. And I really, really hope that people get, and I think that they will, but get some really good advice from this if they are thinking about, or if they have, you know, a disabled dog, um, because as you said, it is, it's a lifetime commitment. It is a, it is a love project. So you might be in over your head, but if, you know, if this is something that you think I, I would like to have, you know, a, a disabled dog as part of my life, then you definitely have the resources of Erin to reach out to, and she can, she can definitely guide you through that. And, um, we look forward to seeing her, uh, Rough-coated collie, a puppy soon. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> so you have that to share with people in that journey as well. So yeah, thank you so, so much. Again, completely honored that you even asked me to be here. I'm so grateful. I love both of your work. Um, and I, I just am very humbled by the whole experience. Thank you so much. Hi guys, Renee here. Just a quick and gentle reminder that any of the information that you gather from our podcast, as well as social media on the whole, does not replace working with a qualified ethical dog professional. If you are concerned about your dog's behavior, getting advice as soon as possible can help save you time, energy, money, and your sanity. If you did want to work with me, all of the information to work with me is available in the podcast notes, or you can go to my website, rplusdogs.com. Thanks for listening.